Some of you guys remember that name. He was part of the Nixon administration, came to know Christ, and eventually wrote a book about the church and about the body. And in that book, this is probably back in the early 90s, I think he may have written the book, maybe before then, he commented and said, it is scandalous that so many believers today have such a low view of the church. They see their Christian lives as a solitary exercise, Jesus and me. Or they treat the church as a building or a social center. They flit from congregation to congregation, or they don't associate with any church at all. That the church is held in such low esteem reflects not only the depths of our biblical ignorance, but the alarming extent to which we have succumbed to the obsessive individualism of our modern culture. Now, he's writing this 20-plus years ago. So if he thinks there was individualism going on then, wow, he might need an update. There's some unbelievable individualism taking place now. But, you know, there's a couple of thoughts that are here that I'm, I'm sure we all traffic in a little bit. There's this solitary Jesus and me element to the Christian life. And, and that's being stepped on a little bit here in the article. Let me, let me say this and rescue it from being stepped on. When, when we hear stories, you know, what's Kevin's story that we heard this morning or any of our stories about when we came to Christ, here's what, what became real to us. In that moment, I doubt m- many of us opened our eyes to the big story of the body of Christ and all that Jesus Christ was doing on planet Earth through the church. I kind of doubt anybody came to Christ with that being the launching pad. What probably happened in us is something like what Kevin sounded like. I'm, I was doing life, but there was just something not right, something missing. There, I, I was having a need. And whether that need came because I was just living life and I got worn out and it got old, or I went through a divorce, or I was diagnosed with cancer, whatever it is, at some point, I recognize my life is beat up and I need some help. And it, so at that moment, Christianity becomes a hospital for me as an individual. And I don't know the last time you went to the hospital, you probably didn't go in there concerned with how everybody in the place is doing. How's everybody doing? You're in the hospital. You're there to get what? To get care. So there's a dimension, <clears throat> excuse me, in that that's what the church is. It's a place of care and a place of healing and a place of getting whole. And that's true. But that's not the only dimension that we find in Scripture describing the church. And if we only appreciate that, we will miss out on much of the language of the Scripture is, is missional, it is, it is go into the world oriented, it is direct your life into other people's lives. You know, that's the basic crux of Christianity's activity base on earth. It is Jesus Christ wants to come to meet your need. It is that. And then once he gets inside that need, Jesus Christ wants to travel through you into other people's lives. So that's the church. And so when you look at the church, and it's not other people-oriented. It's not directing itself towards others. That's hugely dysfunctional. That means somehow we have taken a piece of the idea of the church, and we have loved that. Help me. Help me to feel better about my life. And we've done this with the Christian life. And there is a piece of the Christian life that is that, and that's a good thing. But that's not all that there is. There is this mission. And when I hear Chuck Colson describe 
this flitting from church to church thing, you know, going from one congregation for a little while to another congregation for a little while. Some, some of that screams not of biblical ideas or deep biblical love patterns that we see in Scripture. It, it sounds more like Americans who just get sick of stuff. It just, you know, it's got familiar to me. I've been doing that for a long time. I'm sick of this car. I need another one. Well, does it still run? Yeah. I need an upgrade on my phone. It still works? Yeah. I just get tired of stuff, right? Well, we get tired of people that way as well. But, but we're called to love each other. And that love defined biblically, it's got content in it. It's, it's just not this thin little, let me just run from this relationship to that one, to this one, to that one. They're all interchangeable. It doesn't really matter whether I know you any further or come back and be a part of your life. The love that's in the Bible is a love like God loves, and it's got things like loyalty in it, for better, for worse, sacrifice, inconvenience. It's those kinds of qualities that inform how we love one another. Listen, that doesn't play out well in a, in a church world where we just bounce from program to program. What does your program do? I want a program that does this. I want it to meet at this time and to feel this way. Oh, I went to that program for a little while, and then somebody in that offended me or said something, or the pastor made a comment that I didn't really care for, so I just moved somewhere else. Listen, you are not experiencing biblical love. You're just not. Hang around people to the point where you don't feel like you want to hang around them anymore and until the point where they give you a reason to not hang around them anymore and then decide whether you're going to love them or not. You just now graduated into Christianity. Just now. Whatever that was before, it's more like American. It needs to serve me the way I want, when I want, and it needs to not cross me, and it needs to be new. Well, we're going to miss out on so much of what the church is. Right? So we looked last week at this word for fellowship, and it, it's, it's, got some, it's got some content to it. Right? Remember these words? Things like participation, partnership. Right? That's not casual. Communion and contribution. Right? To, to say I have fellowship with people is to say a contribution is going back and forth here. I'm making a contribution into your life. You're making a contribution into mine. It's an association involving close mutual relations and involvement. Close mutual, it's shared relations and involvement. It means to share in something. All right. So if Colson's thoughts are right, why isn't every Christian doing this? If fellowship is one of the primary things the Bible talks about, that, that help the Christian life. Why isn't everybody doing it? Why can Chuck Colson say there's a lot of people out here who just don't make fellowship a priority? Or maybe some of us struggle here. Maybe this level of involvement is something we just struggle with pulling off or prioritizing or giving ourselves to. Why is that? Well, let me desell this before I sell it this morning. Maybe it's that fellowship is a whole lot easier said than done. Like a lot of things. Isn't there a lot of stuff in life that way? Fellowship is that way. It's a whole lot easier said than done. All right, last week, we, you know, if you weren't here last week, please get the, the 
download or get the CD or whatever. Just You're going to have a hard time piecing all this together without parts of what was last week. But last week we looked at God calling the Corinthians into fellowship with his son. And that's how the book of Corinthians starts. And then it's going to then it's going to go into their life and how they live it. And we looked at King David being called into fellowship with the living God and the impact, and we're going to look further at his life again today, the impact that it had upon him. But there's reality in these stories. I wish I could stand up and say, listen, when you, when you register for these, oh, man, do you have a fall coming your way? You're going to be in these groups and nothing but sunshine and lollipops. I don't know how else to describe it. It's small groups at Lakeview. Um, Well, you know, that would make us uniquely different than the Corinthians and uniquely different than David and his friends. Because the Corinthians were called into fellowship with the living God and turned around and mistreated each other for the next several chapters of the letter of Corinthians in all kinds of ways. So apparently, called into the fellowship with God doesn't mean that when you're Christians and you now spend time together, you will have no problems because you're called into the fellowship with God. You will have no problems fellowshipping with each other. The Corinthians had lots of problems. Read the book of Corinthians. It's it's quite a study on how a church can do a lot of stuff wrong. And the Bible includes it, and it's helpful for us to see that. King David. We're going to see the good side of the impact on his life today, but being called into the fellowship with God, King David was, didn't work out real well for a guy named Uriah or his wife Bathsheba or David's friends who he deceived and betrayed and murdered and committed adultery with. So listen, I'd love to stand and say... Every context that is that is got the Christian umbrella over it, marriage, every context of putting people together, family, the church. If you just stick it under the Christian umbrella, then we all know that every one of those things suddenly and instantly becomes problem-free, no issues between those folks. Because it's it's Christian. Christian marriages. So glad we don't have to do any kind of counseling for Christian marriages. And there's no need for these conferences that we do or small groups devoted to that. And family, boy, if you just say you're a Christian family, it's amazing. All the conflict just drains right out of your home. Isn't it impressive? It's amazing, isn't it? It's not true, is it? So we come into the church, and it's a Christian church. It's got people in it. And so with all of us, the same stuff that travels into our marriages and our families is going to travel into the church with us. And we're going to be called into this participation and contribution and fellowship and sharing in life together. And we're going to all bring sin with us. And we're going to all affect each other out of a variety of differences that exist among us and different priorities and ways of doing things. And you do it that way and I do it this way. Neither one of them's right, but I feel like mine's right. <laughs> and I feel like yours is wrong. And we get together and we're going to have challenges. And so this is the reality that informs any Christian relationship. Here's the reality. I think I spelled this out in your outline for every human being. We have all 
all, every one of us, not a person in this building escapes what I'm about to say. We have all been hurt, wounded in relating to people throughout our lives in some measure, in some way. We've all been disappointed and let down by people in our lives. We've all been offended by others. We've all been judged by others. And if you're not aware of that, you need to go talk to some folks. When you're not looking, they're judging you. (laughs) Uh, We've all been rejected. We've all been excluded or snubbed in our life and made to feel like we didn't measure up and didn't fit in somehow. We've all been criticized. We've all been disapproved of. And we've all been gossiped about. So, the temptation is to, I mean, that's a great list, isn't it? There's a group out there for that too. Uh, Actually, all the groups have that in them. Uh, But who wants to sign up for that? Who wants to be a part of being vulnerable to that kind of stuff happening in our lives? This is where a built-in deterrent comes. But, but we're all on common ground here. Can I break the news to everybody here? What I just described is true of every one of us in this room. It, listen to me carefully. It's not just true of the loud people. You know the loud people that get hurt? Right? There's two kinds of people that slam their door, their hand in the door of a car. Right, you ever see somebody, you know, they do that? You got the people, as soon as the pain comes, they are loud. I mean, it's just, woo, train sound goes up. Then you got other people slam the door, and it's like. <laughs> right, and there's no sound coming out. They're still in pain as much as the other guy. They just don't manifest it the same way. Right, in this room, you got loud people. When they get hurt, everybody knows they're hurt. Matter of fact, if you give them 13 seconds, they will tell you about a hurt that's 13 years old. And they just, they just hurts just come up. We, they just talk about their hurt and people and what's happened. And, and this is how they've learned to communicate. You know, some people say, hi, I'm Keith. They start with, I've been hurt. You know, and just, they're loud. You know when they're hurt. But do you, do you realize that there are people laughing in this room today who have been hurt too? Maybe hurt just as bad as the loud people. There are people who are quiet who have been hurt just as bad as anybody else. They just don't tell anybody about it. Right? I mean, a few years ago, we used, to, we used to kind of, I don't know if we made Peter tell his story more often, but we kind of wanted him to tell his story more often because you kind of get around him and you don't know, this dude's got mileage on him. He's been dragged backwards through life in some categories. But, but you wouldn't know that because he kind of doesn't talk about that kind of stuff very much. So you come in for counseling thinking you've got the absolute worst story going on. Let me tell you about my parents and what they did to me when I was growing up. Uh, don't ever do that with Peter. Because <laughs> you run the risk that he's going to one-up you really, really bad. Uh, because whatever bad experiences you've had and you've, you've kind of related to them, other people have had them. And so we're, we've all got a reason why not to get around each other. We all do. We've all experienced these things. So how, how, does, how does God fix that? How do we fellowship with one another with all the bruises and bumps and sensitivities and avoidances that are in us? Well, I want you to meet a man named Mephibosheth. 
2 Samuel, if you can find your way back to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel, we were there last week. 2 Samuel chapter 9, Mephibosheth is a man who, well, he's experienced quite a bit of hurt and pain, and he is, he's living on the edges of relationships. He's remotely located. People are at a distance, and most of us could probably assume he's got good reasons for that from his story. But God's about to interrupt all that. So let's read together here in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. And David, remember where we are now. 2 Samuel 7 is God making a covenant with David, bringing him into fellowship and, and intending to bless him for the rest of his life. 2 Samuel 8 is sort of a highlight reel of wars and battles, and here we are in 2 Samuel 9. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That word kindness, when you see it, might be loving kindness in your translation. It could be steadfastness in other places in Scripture. It's the Hebrew word chesed. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. They called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do, do not fear. Right, you read the Bible and realize it says stuff for a reason. Why would David tell this guy, do not fear? Well, when you hear, hear the whole story about Mephibosheth, it's because he's probably wet his pants right in front of David. He's scared to death of David. And from everything he knows, he should be. Do not fear, for I will show you chesed, kindness, for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul. And your father, Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Right. Do you remember how David responded to God's kindness last week? God pours out this promise of how I'm going to treat you in the future. And David responded exactly the same way. Why would you do this for me? That's Mephibosheth too. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul, to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Look at verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. He was lame in both 
of his feet. Father, help us in the few moments that we have left together to see who you are in the midst of our brokenness and our alienation and our need to see who you are and who you will be to us, even through others. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, remember Mephibosheth. His background is he is King Saul, King Saul's grandson. So according to the rules of the land, King Saul has a lineage who will one day stand in line to be king. Mephibosheth is in that line. So he, he is a prince. And something happens to disrupt his life when he was a young boy. I think he's about five years old when this occurs. News travels. There's been a battle. And in that battle, Saul has been killed. And Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, has been killed. So the lineage of the kings has been cut. Well, Mephibosheth would be next in line to be king. So he's a prince who hears that his father and grandfather have both been killed. The king is dead. And if you read back in 2 Samuel chapter 4 about this account, the servants... Grab, as soon as they hear this, they grab Mephibosheth up and they run for their lives. And on the way out, they trip and apparently fall on Mephibosheth in such a way that he's crippled. So from five years old up, he is crippled for the rest of his life. Why that risk? Well, because when kings died, there, there would be a power struggle as to who would now be king. And David, the talk in the land, remember God had anointed David, but Saul is the king and his lineage is the, the, the next in line to be king. But the talk in the land is that God has appointed David to be king. So there's already talk of a rival throne to take over the family. And so out of preservation, they are running for their lives. And if you read 2 Samuel 4, you'll find out there's great reason why to run for your life. David's right-hand man is a man named Joab. Joab, I don't know what you'd call him, uh, military leader, henchman, maybe might, would be a better term. Uh, he's mafia-connected. Joab's the guy that when David wants to kill Uriah, he asks Joab to do it. Joab is loyal to King David and to his throne. As soon as Saul is killed... Joab arranges and has Abner, who is Saul's right-hand man, Joab kills him. And then mysteriously, Mephibosheth's uncle gets killed by family members. Oh, how'd that happen? I mean, this is like you're just waiting for a to break out. This is like a mob thing going on. And so out of preservation, they run for their lives. Like one commentator says, Mephibosheth had good cause to be afraid of David. There is wide precedent in Mesopotamian texts for the elimination of all rival claimants to the throne when a king comes to power. For example, Ashurbanipal mutilated, executed, and fed the bodies of his grandfather's rivals to dogs as part of his first official act as king of Assyria. So here's Mephibosheth. In an instant, he's gone from Prince Mephibosheth to a crippled person for the rest of his life on the run for his life, he's going to end up living far away from any form of money. The family business is down the drain. 
He's got no income. He's got no way to provide for himself. And his name is on a blacklist that if he ever gets found out where he is, he's a dead man. And now can you imagine, go ahead and be Mephibosheth for me for a second. And think what kind of a person you are. Wondering what your life could have been, what it might have been like. Imagining in your mind what David is like and what he wants to do to you if he could ever find you. And you go into hiding in a place called Lodibar. Right? Interesting word, this Lodibar. Matthew Henry describes the place as, he says, Mephibosheth lived in obscurity, probably among his mother's relations in Lodibar and Gilead. On the other side of the Jordan, where he was forgotten as a dead man out of mind. There's a real question as to why people lived on the other side of the Jordan. This is to the east. So if you're looking at a map, the Jordan's here, Jerusalem's here, Gilead is over here. Gilead it means a rocky region. And it's an interesting place because people flee there in Scripture commonly. Right? You've got Jacob fled to this location when Esau was looking to kill him. David fled there when his son Absalom was trying to kill him. Elijah fled to this location when Ahab was trying to kill him. Now listen, why do people flee there? <laughs> because there ain't nothing there. It's just a rocky, you know, this is Tora Bora. This is, you know, hanging out in the middle of Afghanistan in the caves somewhere. And this is the life that this man has. And interesting, the place is called Lodibar. Right? It means no pasture. You live in a place called no pasture. And the wording of the Old Testament was about sheep and about what was good for them and caring for them. Well, pasture land was critical to their well-being. It, it represented uh, blessing. It represented provision and food. It, you know, if you looked up into the pasture land and it was rich and abundant, there was security in that setting for you as a sheep. So to stand and say, this guy lives in low debar. He lives in no pasture. He lives in a place that doesn't provide provision. He lives in a place that doesn't give him any sense of stability and security and future and confidence that in the future I'm going to be able to make it here. That's where he lives. That's what life has become for this guy named Mephibosheth. My question, what makes relating to people in low debar difficult is that these are people who in some way are hiding out. That's what Mephibosheth is doing there. He's hiding out. Kind of living on Misery Mountain. Living in a location to keep him from other things. Right? Do you, I mean, do you recognize that some people, they live their life playing defense? That's how, they, that's how they've learned to do relationships. That's how they've learned to do their life. Because of the way in which they were brought up, because of the experiences that they had when they were younger, because of the wounds and the disappointments, because of somewhat the way their personality might be, because of maybe having an experience like Mephibosheth had, where at a young age something crippled them for life. It was a crippling experience that they had when they were younger that suddenly came into their life. And so they've learned from now on I'm going to live on the edges. I'm going to hide out. I I don't want to be found by you. Although although I desperately want to be found by people. I'm just terrified 
That's what Mephibosheth was living. That's why I can't understand where he shows up before David. He's expecting. His, all of his mindset was that if I ever get around this guy, I'm a dead man. Listen, I mean, we can be sitting here today thinking, I, I don't do relationships because if I ever got around people, you don't understand. You know, and there's this fear thing in us, that same way it's in Mephibosheth. That we are just scared to death. There's some people wrestling with ever being married in this room. For those kinds of reasons. I'm just scared to death. If I had to live with a person and be known by them, oh, they certainly would reject me, would hurt me, would not accept me for who I am. And so you just begin to do that to people. And, and you get into a big public setting like this, and, and you're not one of those public people. You don't do things in public. You're not an outspoken person. So you know, the thought of getting into a group, I'll get into that group, and I know it will happen because it's happened before. I'll get in that group, and, and, and I won't fit in. And those people have all known each other for a long time. And so we just start avoiding, just play defense everywhere we go. And yet we want to be a part of the church. We want that. But there's stuff in us that just keeps us. From those places. Listen, you know, we, we're promoting fellowship. We're, we're seeking to connect our lives to one another. Let me just issue a realistic charge to all of us here. There are people around us who are living their life like Mephibosheths. There are people that attend here. They're kind of hiding out in Gilead. And when we run the numbers on what's going on around this place, you know, we find 1,200 people running in and out of here. We don't find 1,200 people in groups. Now, I know there's a bunch of reasons, and maybe I'll talk about some of the other ones another time. But there's, a, there's an element that some of us don't want to get near relationships a certain way because of whatever has brought us to this point. Here's the problem. God doesn't want you living in Gilead. You might think it's comfortable there. I don't know how much, it just can't be a great place. Remember, Elijah had to order out food. I mean, there was nothing to eat there. You know, ravens had to deliver food for this guy. So this cannot be a thriving, you know, there's no super Walmarts in Gilead. But yet you choose to live there anyway. So, I mean, sometimes relationally, we just live in poverty because we're just afraid to, to get involved with people. And so we just accept. But God's not interested in you accepting poverty. So God does something to a guy named David. It ends up making a difference to a guy named Mephibosheth. And I think that's what God wants to do. That's what I call the overflow of hesed. This loving kindness of God came to David. And it touched David in such a way that he begins to pursue Mephibosheth, right? Why does this story even happen? Verse 3, chapter 9. And the king said, right, where does this come from? Why does the king all of a sudden say, is there not still someone of the house of Saul, the rival king, by the way, is there not still someone of his house that I may show the hesed of God to him? that I may pursue him and show him the loving kindness of God. Where does this come from? Well, it comes two chapters back. Right? It comes when God pursues David this way. And he says, because of my own heart, 
God reveals that he has done this toward David. And David, you wanted to build me a house, remember last week? You wanted to build me a house? No, David, I'm, I'm the blesser here. I'm going to bless you. Remember, David is puzzled by this. Lord, you, you know your servant. You know what I'm like. Why would you do that for me? And that doesn't deter God for a second because God makes clear to him, David, it's not because of your ability to win me that I do these things. It's not because you, like nobody else in the world, you would never commit adultery. You would never murder anybody. You would never deceive and betray your friends, David. You would never do that. Therefore, I give to you my loving kindness. Quite the opposite, wasn't it? In spite of those things, God blesses David. But that left an impression upon David. He doesn't just ask in chapter 9, verse 3, hey, is there anybody doing me a favor out there that I could do them a favor? No, no, no. Is there anybody of my rival's family that I could do good to them, that I could extend to them the loving kindness of God that was extended to me? Uh, Yes, David, there's this guy named Mephibosheth. Go and find him. Do you realize it's King David who writes Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. The Lord is my, he is these things to me. Do you remember how it ends? Surely goodness and loving kindness, chesed, shall follow me, and that's a weak word because it actually means to run someone down all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David writes that psalm out of his encounter with God. God has come and found me. God has been these things to me. And God has secured me to to eat at his table, to dwell in his house forever. And what does David do to Mephibosheth? The same thing. Go and find him and bring him to, he shall eat at my table and dwell in my house. David, why did you treat Mephibosheth that way? Because that's what God did to me. This is what overflowing chesed looks like in the Bible. What abundantly poured out of God's heart to undeserving David, then abundantly poured out of David's heart to undeserving Mephibosheth. I make no doubt about it. Given the bitterness of life, I'm pretty sure Mephibosheth was not David's fan. He got summoned to David. He didn't come throwing David a parade. Everything that he had grown up thinking about David didn't commend David to him. That's why he shows up and says, I'm, I'm a dog. That's who I am. Why would you do this for me, your enemy? And yet he does. Listen, it is, it is this overflow that starts with God and flows into David that flows into Mephibosheth. But, but what's in God is this, this overflow that seeks the people who live in Lodibar. That seeks to people and no pastor to be their shepherd, to give them pasture. This, this is where the gospel comes from, right? If you want to try and find the epicenter for the gospel, you, you, you can't find it in people. It is located inside God. It is the overflow of the loving kindness, the hesed of God that's in him that he decides, I will pour it out on whom I pour it out. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. But I will spill this on people. And he does. 
That's how people come to know him. Listen, I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are about, who, you know, who was this Jesus Christ? He gets just this ultimate do-good kind of guy. You know, he ran from person to person, from need to need. You know, kind of a social changer, loving the down and out, just making a difference for people who felt beat up by life. What did Jesus say about who he was? Right, I put one passage there in your, in your outline. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Right, if you want to ever figure out who's this historic figure named Jesus Christ, let him speak for himself. Don't just find some guy who looks like a social reformer who showed up, went against the grain, rubbed everybody the wrong way because, you know, he was going to love people without the establishment. You know, he was kind of this hippie before his time, right before the 60s, Jesus came. What did he say about himself? He said this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, what's interesting is the location of that statement. That statement is at the end of a story of Jesus interacting with a man named Zacchaeus. Right? In chapter 19 of Luke, Zacchaeus is apparently a short guy, but a very important guy. But interesting, different than Mephibosheth, but yet very similar to Mephibosheth. Not living in Gilead, he's, he's living in a very wealthy location in Jericho. He is the chief tax collector in the area, which basically means he's got access to his money, your money, and lots of money. And he's a chief, so he's got people working for him. And yet, apparently, he lives in Lodibar too, because as soon as he hears that this Jesus is going to be in town, this Jesus is going to pass through his town, this very distinguished man, this uh, sort of guy who ran money laundering and money activity, the guy who pulled the strings on a lot of activity in Jericho, the guy who lived in the palace up on the hill, that guy is going to run ahead of Jesus and climb up in a tree. Because in spite of all his wealth and all of his dignity and all of his coolness, unlike Mephibosheth, he was just as much in need as Mephibosheth was. And he climbs in that tree, this embarrassing activity, like a little kid climbing up in a tree to see Jesus Christ pass by. And Jesus, interesting, Jesus pours out loving kindness on this man. He has mercy on this man. This guy, listen, this guy's an extortioner. I mean, you have any idea who this guy is? In that crowd, as Jesus is interacting with him, there are husbands and families and officials who are watching this who cannot believe. That's the guy that put us out of our home. That's him. This guy that Jesus is hanging around, wanting to go to his house and fellowship with him. And this is mind-blowing. God does some weird stuff. I mean, you and I get way down the road here. We look back on David and God. David and I played the harp, won some big battles, had a heart after God. And he was an adulterer and a murderer and a deceiver and a betrayer. He was that too. And this guy, Zacchaeus, he's no, he's no angel. 
And yet God pours out this loving kindness on him. And immediately, right, do you know the story? Immediately it has the same effect on him as it had on David. Lord, whoever I have ripped off, I will repay them and I will restore to them fourfold. And I won't just give back what I took. I will lavish upon them four times what I took. I'm going to replace in their life and do good to them. So this, this, is, this is the effect that the loving kindness of God has upon people's lives. And I want to do two things here. We're going to close, so I know where Eric is. Two things. One, and I don't, you came here this morning, and I don't, maybe your storyline looks like the David or the Mephibosheth or the Zacchaeus, the person whose life doesn't, doesn't commend you to be the ultimate human being. You're not here today saying, yeah, I could run for ultimate human being and everybody would vote for me. That's not where you're at. But maybe you've never thought of this. That mercy and loving kindness is chasing you down. It has been, and it is right now, and it's really why you're here. That the loving kindness, that chesed, that quality that's inside of God, that he loves to take and spill out on people like David, who could murder and commit adultery and do horrible things. If you've not read the biblical story of David, that's, that's who the guy was. And yet God ran him down and poured out loving kindness on him. And God did that with Zacchaeus. This man who had hurt people, extorted from them, lied, created a system where he could steal from the nation of Israel, God's own people, he was stealing from them. He was working for the Romans. And all their brutality and their exacting of taxes and making life hard. I mean, in real life, you ever, you ever watch somebody, you ever known somebody get put out of their house? You ever walk with somebody through that heartache that their finances collapsed and bankruptcy occurred and they're being put out of their house? That's real life. Zacchaeus is the guy who makes that happen because he extorts all the money from you and you can't afford to pay for things anymore. And Jesus Christ finds that man and pours out his loving kindness upon this man. Listen, can I just tell you this morning, that's who Jesus Christ is. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. Pretty lost, ugly lost, violent lost, deceiving, horrible lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. Listen, if you're here this morning and you feel lost, maybe you feel like Kevin's story at some point in your life, feel like I'm, I'm trying to find my way through. I'm, I'm probably here because I know somebody. Maybe I got invited today. If you're lost, you're who Jesus Christ is looking for. And you don't have to have a cool resume to respond to him. As a matter of fact, you don't have to have anything to offer except just surrender. That's it. Just say, Lord, you want to you pour out that kind of love on me? I know I need it. Well, they just tell him yes.
Tell him yes this morning. Say, Jesus Christ, come. Come love my life. Come forgive me of my sins. Come welcome me into your family and make me your child. Listen, if that's who you are this morning, you're lost, then turn to God. That's what repentance is. It's turning from your lost way of doing life. I had to do that in 1979. I came to a place where I had to turn from my way of doing life and turn to Christ. You don't have to know all the future. You don't have to be in control of all that. You just need to trust Him. You just let God take your life from you and make it His own. And let Him love you. Let Him pour out His blessing upon your life. And if you're wondering why would God do that, well, then you can wonder right along with me and everybody else in this room. I don't know why God would do that for me. But He did. And He'll do it for you. If you just open your heart and receive, do that this morning. Let me appeal to the rest of us this morning. If you're not responding that way, it's because I trust you've already received the loving kindness of God. It's been poured out in your life. It's real. It's yours. Look at the impact that it has on people. Right? If you're a David and you've received this mysterious love of God poured out in our hearts, it does something to us. It makes us want to do the same. It makes us want to take that and go that way with it. It makes us want to say, is there anybody of the house of Saul that I might show to them the loving kindness of God? Is there anybody? Hey, guys, do you realize that there's Mephibosheths all over the place? There are people, and I want to I ask you to let the Lord show you, there are people in your life, and if you've been in this church for a while, you've, you've been in a small group with them for a while, but you don't know where they are now. You've walked with people who seem to be in one condition spiritually, but right now you know that they are dislodged, that they are wandering, they are confused, they are hurt. Listen, can I, can I what, what would happen if we just turned loose everybody in this room on one person? Each one person, not everybody, go to one person. But <laughs> I'd freak them out if we all went to one. But what if each one of us right now said, Lord, I'm, there's somebody I know living in Gilead in no pasture, not experiencing safety and safekeeping and abundance and care, provision in their life and a sense of the hope of the nearness of God and his people. They're not experiencing that. All right. God came and found you that way. And poured out into your life his loving kindness. And he's still seeking them through you now. Same way he did David. God met Mephibosheth and Gilead through David. And God needs to meet somebody through you. So, you know, as we're, we're all signing up for groups, we're all, listen, there, there's 1,200 people that stick their head in and out of these doors in a month or two's time. They're not all here this morning. And that's just a snapshot. We took the last four years and said, how many people have spent some time in this fellowship that right now maybe are nowhere? And if you might know who they are, can you let God this morning send you to them? Can you go find them in their Gilead? 
and reintroduce them to the loving kindness of God and offer words of encouragement and build some kind of a bridge so that they can experience God running them down in their life. Would you do that? How many of you guys got somebody in mind right now? Right, got somebody in mind? Come on. I'm going to wait until you get somebody in mind, so. You thinking of somebody? Now let's stand up and pray together. Lord, our song has become surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life and I will get to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, thank you for a love that found us in our land of no pasture, of living with our own resources, doing life our own way, trying to make sense of things with our own thoughts. And you came and found us. And Lord, the reality is when you came and found us, it was through somebody that had a name like a David. Lord, would you make us to be the carriers of your loving kindness to others? Lord, just to remind folks that God knows where they are. Lord, for us to find people this week and contact them and say, I was thinking of you the other day. This felt like the Lord wanted me to remind you that he knows where you are. How are you doing? Just wanted to see if we could connect. Lord, would you help us do that? Because, Lord, it's, it's not a joy to live in Gilead. Lord, it's not a joy to live in Lodi Bar. You made sure that that wouldn't be our dwelling place. Lord, help us now. We'd help others to not dwell there any longer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, if you haven't registered yet, you can still do that for a group.